You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 9, verse 32 to 43. All right, we're going to start at verse 32. This is God's word. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralysed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was also, or she was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Thanks, Ben. If I haven't met you, my name's Aaron, one of the pastors here at DPC. It'd be great if you could have that passage open. If you didn't already have it open, uh, there's a copy of the Bible passage on the welcome card. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's the welcome card online. There are Bibles at the end of the rows. If you didn't come to church with a Bible, feel free to pick up one of those uh, and find Acts chapter 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts Uh, if you're wondering where Acts is in the New Testament. Uh, Someone who's got one of the Pew Bibles might want to shout out the page number for Acts chapter 9. Has anyone got it? Acts 9? Anyway, uh, there's an outline of my sermon as well uh, on the welcome card. You can follow along. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, please uh, please do help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. Uh, Please fill me afresh, even in this moment, with the power of your Spirit that I might speak with boldness and deep conviction, uh, that your spirit might open our hearts and minds, our eyes and ears uh, to the wonder and glory of who your son is. In his name we pray. Amen. So uh, I wonder uh, how do you decide whose words to trust in life? It's a pretty important question. We're surrounded by all sorts of different voices every day of our lives. We've got to sort of filter through them, sift through them. 
uh, to work out which ones to actually uh, let shape our lives, influence our lives. Uh, for example, uh, if I was to go on holiday uh, to a place that I've never been to before, one of the first things I have to do is find the best coffee in town. Uh, I'm sure some people are the same. Uh, and so you're kind of scoping the scene around the main streets of town. You see one man uh, carrying a McCafe coffee in his hand. Uh, and you see another woman carrying some beans and filter papers in her hand. Now, which one are you going to trust the coffee recommendations of? No, that is the wrong. Uh, so, yeah, totally trusting the recommendation of that woman with the beans and filter papers in her hand. Why? Because they authenticate her. They confirm her to be just as much of a coffee snob as me. Uh, and so she's bound to know where the best coffee in town is. You see, it's really important uh, to have some way of authenticating people's words to confirm that what people are saying about their chosen area is true. And, of course, coffee's not that, that big a deal. The stakes aren't that high. If I get a wrong, uh, kind of a really bad coffee, I've wasted some money on a disgusting coffee, big deal. Uh, maybe a, a more serious example is if you go to a doctor's surgery... I don't know if you've noticed this before, but often when you go into the doctor's uh, surgery, especially if it's not a kind of mass one where they cycle through GPs all the time, uh, they might have their certificates of qualification up on the wall. I wonder if you've thought about why they put those up on the wall. Uh, if you're a, a bit of a cynical type, you might say, well, it's just because they've been to medical school and they want everyone to know and they're happy to show off with their certificates, right? But more charitably... You could say, well, they're to assure us that they really know what they're talking about. They're to confirm that this person is a trusted medical source, an expert, someone who really can speak with authority about the, uh, about the sphere of medicine. Now, of course, the, the sphere of medicine is a much bigger deal than the sphere of coffee. Right? Getting the wrong diagnosis or treatment when you go to visit a doctor, that could lead to further injury, to Worse disease, even to death, if they got it really wrong. And yet, the world of medicine isn't even as serious as the world of spirituality. The truth of the gospel, for example. How do you know who to trust when it comes to what the message of the gospel actually is? The good news of Christianity. How do you know who to trust, who to listen to? How do you know who to trust when it comes to who the good news about Jesus is actually for? Who's it available to? These are really big questions. Because if you take the Bible seriously, you see that the stakes for getting it wrong aren't just temporary suffering and death in this life, but even eternal suffering and death. So when people are talking about the good news about Jesus, the gospel, we really have to have a way to authenticate their words to confirm them as a trusted source. And that is why Luke includes this passage at this point in the book of Acts. Uh, if you want to look at the book of Acts, uh, if you've got it open, uh, you might flick back to chapters 8 and 9 and see that the focus in chapters 8 and 9 has been almost exclusively on Saul. Remember Saul, also known as Paul elsewhere in the New Testament? Uh, it's been on how Jesus, uh, the focus has been on how Jesus appeared to Saul uh, and how Jesus personally commissioned Saul, sent him out as an apostle. And what does it mean? It means that we can trust Saul's words about the gospel 
because he's a true apostle of Jesus. That's part of what Luke's been, the case that Luke's been building about Saul. But what about Peter? In Acts chapters 10 and 11, or really from here at the end of chapter 9, Luke's focus shifts back to Peter. Peter was all the rage in kind of chapters 2 to 5, but we haven't heard much of him. Now Luke's shifting back to Peter. And in chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Acts, Peter is going to make a radical declaration about the gospel. After Peter sees Cornelius and his household become Christians, they're the first non-Jewish people to believe in Jesus, Peter makes the radical declaration that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is for absolutely everyone. That's radical, right? For centuries, the Jewish people, like Peter, had been God's specially chosen people. If you wanted to receive God's blessings, you had to become a part of the the Jewish people. That was where God's blessings could be found. So it's a radical thing for Peter to say, no, 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 the good news about Jesus, the blessings that are found in Jesus aren't just for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles too. The gospel is for everyone. Why should we trust Peter when he says that? What we see in this passage uh, is that Peter's wonders authenticate his words. His wonders, the miraculous wonders that he performs, serve to authenticate, to confirm his words. They show that the power of Jesus is at work through Peter so that we can trust that the kind of authoritative words are also coming through Peter. So what's my summary of this passage? It is that we can trust Peter's declaration that the gospel is for everyone because he's a true apostle of Jesus. Someone who really has been sent by Jesus and speaks and acts on Jesus' behalf. We can trust Peter's declaration that the gospel is for everyone. We'll hear more about that next week because he's a true apostle of Jesus. So let's take a look first. Before we get to Peter's wonders that confirm his words, let's take a look at verse 32. We see there in verse 32 uh, that when a time of peace arrives, Peter sees a gospel opportunity. Look at verse 32. Luke says, As Peter travelled about the country, uh, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. You might remember that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, if you don't remember, you could scan back to that. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, a massive kind of intense persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. All the Christians in Jerusalem, except for the apostles like Peter, are scattered from Jerusalem, and Luke says they share the gospel as they go. But Peter's still in Jerusalem. And now when the time of peace arrives, you you can see that in chapter 9, verse 31, the verse right before this, there's a wonderful period of peace and stability for the church. And Peter sees the opportunity to get out of Jerusalem and encourage the Lord's people in nearby Lydda. Lydda being the kind of closest port city to Jerusalem, uh, just on the coast nearby. And now, no doubt uh, that the church in Jerusalem uh, would have been a pretty diverse group of people, like all churches. I suspect that all of them would have had their own unique experience of the intense period of persecution that the church had just endured. Uh, Probably some of them were feeling pretty exhausted and banged up by that season. Many of them would have lost brothers and sisters, actual brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
who were arrested and imprisoned, even executed during that persecution. They would have still been dealing with their grief and trauma from that. You can imagine that when this time of peace came, what those Christians needed was just to rest and recuperate in Jerusalem. Just relax for a bit. But Peter seems to be a bit different to that. When the time of peace and stability arrives, Peter uh, is finding in himself uh, that the Lord is stirring him up for new ministry opportunities. He's eager to get out of Jerusalem and encourage the Lord's people in the nearby towns. So that's quite different, isn't it? Uh, This is one of the wonderful things, but also the constantly challenging things about being a part of a diverse church family. To keep remembering that none of us are exactly the same. We all have our unique personalities, our unique life circumstances, our unique life experiences. We have our unique capacities, physically and emotionally and so on. We're all very different. So it shouldn't shock us that if on the back of the past two or three years that have been pretty intense with a pandemic and all the stresses that have gone along with that, it shouldn't shock us that we might respond to that a little bit differently. Some of us, like these Christians in Jerusalem... Uh, not that we've been persecuted as such, but like these Christians in Jerusalem, uh, you might feel that you just need time to rest and recover and recuperate. But I know many of you have felt like that. I've spoken to you about it. You might feel that you need to uh, step back from serving in particular roles or stop serving in, in, in uh, kind of ministry altogether because you just need a break. I know many of you have already spoken to Adam Humphreys, who helps coordinate our ministry teams, or your ministry kind of department leader, and you've been able to take a break. Let me say, if you feel this kind of exhaustion and tiredness after the intense season that we've had, and you haven't spoken to someone about that yet, uh, please do. It's actually really okay to be tired and need to take a rest. On the other hand... Others, perhaps, are a little bit more like Peter in this season. You're excited about a new period where there's a bit more peace and stability. We get to meet together more often. And you're finding in this season that the Lord is stirring you up to see and even to have the energy to embrace new ministry opportunities. And what I want you to hear, uh, if you're in that camp, is that it's okay for you to serve at the pace that you feel is sustainable for you. You see my point? The point is that in the body of Christ, we're all individuals, we're all unique, we're going to experience life differently. The important thing is that we are honest with ourselves and with one another, that we seek to to really understand one another so that we can keep caring for one another and keep serving the Lord together in ways that are sustainable and kind of at the pace that we can go at at any given time. If someone's able to run a bit faster than you in a season, you can cheer them on. If someone needs to serve a bit slower than you in a season, uh, you can thank God for them and encourage them and support them, encourage them to rest in the Lord. That's verse 32. Peter uh, sees a gospel opportunity uh, in this time of peace. Well, in verses 33 and 35, we get to the first of Peter's wonders that confirm his words. Now, I'm going to say it as Aeneas I haven't looked up the official Greek uh, pronunciation, so uh, Ben and I are saying it slightly differently. Uh, But we see uh, that in this town of Lydda, uh, Peter 
um, <coughs> excuse me, Peter heals a paralyzed man named Aeneas. Uh, let me just find my spot. Verse 33. Uh, while Peter was in Lydda, uh, Luke says, Peter found a man uh, named Aeneas uh, who was paralyzed uh, and had been bedridden for eight years. You read that, perhaps if you've read the stories of Jesus' life in the Gospels, uh, you might be reminded of another paralysed man, a man that Jesus met uh, in Luke's first book, his Gospel. Uh, He records a time where Jesus came across a paralysed man, or rather a paralysed man was brought to him. Uh, You can read it later on, but I'll just read some snapshots in Luke chapter 5, verse 18. You can write that down and read it later. But Luke 5, verse 18 It says, some men came to Jesus carrying a paralysed man on a mat or a bed. Same idea. Uh, They tried uh, to take the man into the house to lay him before Jesus. Uh, When this paralysed man was ultimately laid before Jesus, uh, in verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, I tell you, here's those words again, get up. Take your mat and go home. Uh, Immediately, uh, the man stood up in front of them all, uh, took what he had been lying on, uh, and he went home praising God. It's an incredible miracle. It's the sort of miracle that Peter himself was talking about when he was preaching to the crowds in Jerusalem back in chapter 2, verse 22, uh, where he said about Jesus, he said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs. What's Peter saying? He's saying Jesus' wonders confirmed his words. His wonders said over and over again that he really was who he said he was. His wonders over and over again were God saying, were kind of flashing Jesus' accreditation past before us. He was accredited to you by God. You guys knew Peter said he was the son of God because of the miracles that he performed before you. And here, these miracles that Peter performs serve a similar role in his ministry. His wonders authenticate his words. So following Jesus' example, you'll see there in verse 34 that Peter says to the paralysed man, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. You see the connections between Luke 5 and Acts chapter 9, right? Peter is following the example of Jesus, his Lord. He's showing that he is a true representative of Jesus, a true apostle of Jesus, because he's able to perform this miracle that's, well, it's kind of just like one that Jesus performed. And yet it's not exactly the same, is it? What's the difference? That's not a rhetorical question. Can anyone spot the difference between Jesus' miracle and Peter's miracle? You have to be bold to yell it out. But the difference is, isn't it, that that Jesus heals the paralysed man in his own power and authority. Peter heals the man in the name of Jesus Christ. You see that? Jesus Christ heals you. Peter knows that he's just a weak and fragile human being through whom the healing power of Jesus is at work. It's actually Jesus. I mean, Adam started the service saying the book of Acts is about the continuing ministry of Jesus through his people in the power of the Spirit. It's actually Jesus, in a sense, 
who heals this man. It's Jesus' healing power uh, at work through Peter. And when Peter says to Aeneas, get up, uh, there's a hint that what's on offer here is not just physical healing. Are those words get up? I think I said last week, uh, they translate the words uh, that could be arise or raise up, stand up. And they're words that are elsewhere used to describe, in the book of Acts, they describe Jesus' resurrection. So what's, what's being offered here is not just physical healing for this life, but the promise that if Aeneas puts his faith in Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ who is healing him in this instant, he won't just be raised up physically, he'll be raised up spiritually. Jesus will give him new life that starts right now and goes on forever. Now let me say, I wonder if you've received this new life from Jesus. I don't know uh, everyone who's here. I don't know how long you've been exploring Christianity, how long you've come to church for. Uh, but perhaps you've heard Jesus saying to you in one way or another, get up, stand up, take up the life that I'm offering you. You've heard the voice of Jesus. Let me urge you today to respond to respond by getting up from your life of rejecting Jesus, running away from Jesus, a life that really only leads to spiritual paralysis and death, and to stand up when you hear the voice of Jesus and run towards Jesus and trust Jesus and follow Jesus, because that is the path that leads to spiritual healing and life. That's the message here in Acts chapter 9. If you've heard Jesus' call, let me urge you today to get up and trust him and follow him. And you'll notice that because Peter's following Jesus' example and performing this miracle in the power of Jesus, it's not Peter who gets the glory. This is the problem with lots of so-called, I'm not saying that miracles can't happen today, but lots of so-called miracle workers, I'm saying so-called, because the focus of their ministry seems to be on getting the spotlight on them. Aren't I great? A true miracle worker today would make Jesus look great. Anyway, little rant. But Peter's ministry, right? He performs miracles, but who do people turn to? They're not enamoured with Peter. They're enamoured with Jesus. Everyone is turning to the Lord. You see that there in verse 35. Right, turning to the Lord, that's a picture of becoming a Christian, it's repentance and faith. Jesus said to people, repent and believe the good news at the start of his ministry. Repentance, uh, in this instance, they're turning away from a life of living as if they were Lord and King of their own lives. And they're turning towards a life, this is faith, of living with Jesus as their Lord and King. So it's a wonderful moment of all sorts of people in these little coastal towns turning to Jesus as their Lord and King. And we see similar ideas in the next miracle uh, from verse 36, where Jesus uh, raises a dead widow named Tabitha. Now take a look in, in verse 36. Uh, in Joppa, uh, there is a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name, means, uh, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good uh, and helping the poor. Sometimes we hear this, and, and you, if you're new to church in particular, you might think, oh, here we go again. Christianity's on about doing good so that God loves you and you're acceptable to him. You've got to work really hard, just like Tabitha. That's not the case at all. 
Right? Tabitha's someone who had experienced the wonderful goodness of Jesus, the grace and compassion and mercy of Jesus uh, that had gripped her heart, that Jesus, uh, in his goodness, had given his life on the cross despite all her badness in her place. And so Jesus' goodness, her personal experience of Jesus' goodness, had welled up into a life where she was committed to doing good to those who were in need. She does good because she's received goodness, not to earn goodness. That's Tabitha. She's a wonderful woman, a pillar of this church community in Joppa, and yet in verse 37, tragedy strikes. About that time, Tabitha became sick and she died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Uh, It's only one verse, perhaps a verse that we might sometimes just skip over to get the exciting bit where she's raised from the dead. But but actually, this would have been devastating for this church. A pretty young church still. Uh, And Tabitha had really been a, a, a pillar of the community. Someone who lots of people had been blessed by. Someone who was a great example of a a godly woman persevering in trusting Jesus. And yet here, seemingly, quite suddenly, she becomes sick and she's gone. In the midst of the the community grieving and kind of preparing her body for burial, incidentally, you, you might say, well, can I really believe that Peter raised someone from the dead? Tabitha must have just lost consciousness or fallen asleep or something. And yet, even though this church in Joppa wouldn't have been medical experts, I'll concede that, uh, what they were experts at was preparing people for burial. They had no kind of local funeral director that they outsourced that to, to kind of keep at arm's length from the process. Right in this day and age, the community together prepared the dead body for burial. They They were used to that. And typically, I reckon, if they were washing a dead body for burial, uh, if the person was, had just lost consciousness or was having a sleep, they'd probably wake up. Like, I, I get that they might not have understood all the technicalities of medicine, but she didn't wake up. She was dead. And while they're preparing her for burial, uh, they must have heard reports that Peter was up the coast and that he performed this incredible miracle in, uh, in healing Aeneas. So you take a look there uh, in verse 38. What do they do? Lydda uh, was near Joppa. Uh, and when the disciples heard that Peter was in uh, Lydda, uh, they sent two men to him uh, and urged him, please come at once. Again, it's really similar to a scene in Jesus' ministry. Again, look it up later on, Luke chapter 8, verses 41, from verse 41 onwards. Luke chapter 8, verses 41 and 42. Uh, We read that a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, uh, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12 years old, was dying. You see, Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus, pleads with Jesus to come at once. His 12-year-old little girl was dying and and by the time Jesus got there, she was dead. Likewise here, these two disciples fall at Peter's feet, pleading with him to come because Tabitha, their dear sister in Christ, had died. Come at once, they say. 
So again, Peter follows Jesus' example, doesn't he? In verse 39, take a look at verse 39, Peter went with them. When he arrived, he was taken uh, upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around uh, him, uh, around him crying uh, and showing him the robes and the other clothes that uh, Dorcas, remember that's Tabitha, uh, had made while she was still with them. This is really similar to what happened when Jesus arrived at Jairus' house. Right, when Jesus, uh, Luke tells us in his, in his gospel, when Jesus arrived at the house of Jairus, uh, he didn't let anyone go in uh, to the room with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. So you notice that, that Peter was there. Uh, meanwhile, all the people around were wailing and mourning for her. Right, Peter's one of the few people on the planet who personally witnessed Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. He witnessed Jesus do that uh, in the midst of all the people mourning and wailing at her death. And here Peter does the same thing. He arrives at a house with a dead, dearly loved woman, everyone mourning and wailing at her death. He knows exactly what to do because he's seen Jesus do it. He goes uh, into the upstairs room. Oh, incidentally, did you notice Luke's focus on the widows here? That's interesting, isn't it? Why is it that it's the widows in particular who are mourning and crying at Tabitha's death? And why is it the widows kind of showing Peter the, the clothes and robes that Tabitha had made? I think it's because, in the, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's important, uh, in the early church... It seems that they had a special order of widows uh, who, when their husbands died, instead of remarrying someone else, uh, they decided to pledge the rest of their lives in full-time service of Jesus and his people. Uh, so in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, uh, really through to verse 16, I think it is, but in particular verses uh, 9 and 10, Paul is describing the qualifications of these widows. So let, let me read uh, 1 Timothy 5 uh, from verse 9. Uh, let me find my notes. I'm going off my notes a lot today. So, uh, 1 Timothy 5 verse 9. Paul says, uh, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, uh, has been faithful to her husband, uh, and is well known for her good deeds. Right? The, the list that Paul's talking about here isn't the list of widows to be cared for. There is a list for that as well, but this is a list of widows that the church is specially setting aside to do the caring, like Tabitha, to live a life where they're committed to doing good in response to Jesus' goodness and for the sake of Jesus' people. And Paul says no widow can be placed on this special list of widows unless they've displayed exemplary godly character, unless they're a great example to the rest of the Lord's people of doing good to all. That was what Tabitha was like in Joppa, a godly woman who, when her husband died, had pledged the rest of her life to serving Jesus and his people. And now, I don't, I, we don't have lots of widows in our church, uh, so we do have some. So I hope Tabitha's example might be an encouragement to you. Uh, but we do have people in our church uh, who are single. And I think it's important for us to understand the underlying principle in this verse. 
or in these verses, which is that uh, while marriage and singleness are both wonderful gifts from God to be enjoyed, the New Testament consistently teaches uh, that if a Christian can remain single and be single-minded in their devotion to Jesus and his people, then that is better by far. I don't have time to unpack all the New Testament passages, but it is a wonderful thing for a Christian to remain single in faithfulness to Jesus and in service of his people. So what does that mean? It means that if you're here today and you're single, like Tabitha was single, and then you must never ever think that you're somehow deficient or second-rate as a Christian because you're not married or you haven't partnered up or you haven't remarried after a separation or divorce or so on. You're not second-rate, you're not deficient. How could that be? Jesus was single. He's not deficient in any way. So how could it be that a church could exist that, that would think that it would be deficient for someone to be single? And let me say, I'm very sorry if in any way our church and what we've said or done has ever sent the message that somehow you're second rate because you're single. Like, like genuinely sorry. Please forgive us if we've done that. And please alert us to our blind spots. There's stuff that we just don't pick up. Please alert us to that. That there are wonderful blessings and challenges of both marriage and singleness. And what I want to say, if you're single, uh, I want to encourage you today uh, to pray that in the midst of whatever challenges of singleness you experience, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be your hope and comfort and strength so that you can embrace some of the unique benefits and blessings of singleness as you live your life like Tabitha in single-minded devotion to Christ and his people. Now, that's just really a dip the toe in the water of singleness, and I understand that it's difficult. Please speak to me if you've got more questions uh, about that. But Tabitha is this wonderful servant of the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if Peter could raise her from the dead? Uh, and so that's what he does. Uh, well, uh, as Jesus had done uh, to Jairus' daughter, have a look in verse 40. Uh, Jesus sent, uh, Peter rather uh, sent out all the people... Uh, from Tabitha's room, uh, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Notice again, it, it's, Peter knows that it's not about him and his power. It's about Jesus and his power. So he kneels humbly before the Lord and says, Lord, please heal, or please raise Tabitha from the dead through me. So having prayed to Jesus, uh, he turns towards the dead woman, and Peter says, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. It's so similar again. You, you can read what Jesus did uh, in Luke chapter 9 uh, with Jairus' daughter. Jesus uh, took Jairus' daughter by the hand and showed her to everyone. Again, his wonders confirmed his words, confirmed that he was the son of God, come to proclaim the good news. Likewise here, Peter takes Tabitha by the hand and shows her off, raised from the dead to everyone. Not so that people would be enamoured with the wonder, but they would know that the words that he is declaring are true. They can be trusted. They come with the authentic stamp of Jesus. So in verse 42, uh, this miracle became known uh, all, over the, all over Joppa 
and many people believed in the Lord. Again, the result of Peter's miraculous wonders is not that people would be necessarily excited about more miracles, but they believe in the word that he tells them about Jesus. That's the focus, that they would trust in the good news about Jesus. So why should you trust Peter's declaration that the gospel is for everyone? It is a radical declaration. It was radical in Peter's day uh, to say that the good news about Jesus wasn't just for the Jewish people, but for people of every nation, uh, for the Gentiles too, and it's radical today. Uh, To say that the good news about Jesus uh, isn't just for those who were brought up in a Christian home or went to Christian schools, uh, it's for everyone. The good news uh, about Jesus uh, isn't just for people who uh, were born and raised in what you might call traditionally Christian countries. Uh, The gospel is for everyone. It's for people who were born and raised in Muslim countries and Hindu countries and Buddhist countries and Confucian countries and atheist countries. The gospel is for everyone, people of every nation. Now, the gospel isn't just for people who tend to have more conservative social or political or moral convictions. We might think that. The gospel's also for those who tend to have more progressive social and moral convictions. But the gospel is for everyone. It's a radical declaration. Why should we trust it? Luke says, because Peter is a true apostle of Jesus someone who really has been sent by Jesus, and you know he's been sent by Jesus because Jesus is at work through him. He's performing miracles that show him to be a true apostle of Jesus. His wonders authenticate his words. So what does that mean for us? At least a couple of things. It means when you're wondering who to trust, who to listen to, when it comes to the good news about Jesus, who do you listen to? you've got to go back to the trusted source. You've got to read the words of Jesus' authorised representatives like Peter that we have in the Bible. That's, what, that's your trusted source. And if you're wondering who to listen to, uh, don't just kind of get on Google uh, and kind of listen to the most influential or charismatic or flashy preacher that's going around. Or you listen to uh, people who are seeking to humbly speak and live in line with the authorised words of Jesus' apostles that we have in the Bible. That's, that's kind of, I mean, it's maybe a little bit of a linking passage today, maybe not as, you know, as exciting as other passages. But I hope you can see that Peter's wonders authenticate his words. And we can trust what Peter has to say about the good news of Jesus. We can trust his declaration that the gospel is for everyone because he's a true apostle of Jesus. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Oh, Father God, uh, we ask that these words uh, would take root in our hearts, in particular that in a world where we're surrounded by lots of different voices, people have lots of different things to say about who your son is, people have lots of things to say about the good news of Jesus and who the good news is for and what it's actually about. Help us, Father, to sift through those voices and to tune in to the ones that are most reliable and trusted. In particular, Father, help us to uh, go back to the original trusted sources, uh, your apostles like Peter, for we know his wonders confirmed his words uh, that we have written down in the Bible. Uh, help us in doing that 
uh, to be captivated by the glory of our Lord Jesus, turning to him afresh, believing in him afresh, worshipping him afresh. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen.